Section 19 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 55 The Example of the New Dominion, Part 1. On February 19, 1867, Lord Carnarvon, Secretary for the Colonies, moved the second reading of the bill for the confederation of the north american provinces of the british empire this was in fact a measure to carry out in practical form the great principles which lord durham had laid down in his celebrated report lord durham had done more than merely affirm the principles on which the constitution of the canadas should be established he had laid the foundations of the structure now the time had come to raise the building to its practical completion the bill prepared by lord carnarvon proposed that the provinces of ontario and quebec in other words upper and lower canada along with nova scotia and new brunswick should be joined in one federation to be called the dominion of canada having a central or federal parliament and local or state legislatures the central parliament was to consist of a senate and a house of commons the senate was to be made up of seventy members nominated by the governor-general for life on a summons from under the great seal of canada the house of commons was to be filled by members elected by the people of the provinces according to the population at the rate of one member for every seventeen thousand persons and the duration of a parliament was not to be more than five years the executive was vested in the crown represented of course by the governor-general the principle on which the central parliament was constructed appears to have been arrived at by adopting some of the ideas of england and some of those of the united states the senate for example was made to resemble as nearly as possible the system of the english house of lords but the representative plan applied to the house of commons was precisely the same as that adopted in the united states it seems almost superfluous to observe that the whole idea on which the dominion system rests is that of the american federation the central parliament manages the common affairs each province has its own local laws and legislature there is the greatest possible variety and diversity in the local systems of the different provinces of the dominion the members are elected to the house of commons on the most diverse principles of suffrage in some of the provinces the vote is open in others it is given by ballot in secret the act of confederation recites that the constitution of the dominion shall be similar in principle to that of the united kingdom but in truth the only similarity consists in the fact that one of the two chambers is nominated by the crown and that the authority of the crown is represented in the dominion by the presence of a governor-general in all other respects the example of the american republic has been followed the keystone of the whole system is that principle of federation which the united states have so long represented and which consists of local self-government for each member of the confederacy and the authority of a common parliament for strictly national affairs this fact is not an objection to the scheme it is on the contrary the best security for its success it would have been impossible to establish in canada 
anything really resembling the constitution of england uniformity of legislation would have been unendurable nothing could make the senate of canada an institution like the english house of lords nomination by the crown could not do it there was some wisdom in the objection raised by mr bright to this part of the scheme a good deal of sentimentalism was talked in parliament by the ministers in charge of the confederation scheme about the filial affection of canada for the mother country and the intense anxiety of the canadians to make their constitution as like as possible to that of england the canadians appear to have very properly thought of their own interests first of all and they adopted the system which they believed would best suit the conditions under which they lived in doing so they did much to strengthen and to commend the federative principle on which their dominion is founded and which appears likely enough to contain the ultimate solution of the whole problem of government as applied to a system made up of various populations with diverse nationalities religions and habitudes so far as one may judge of the tendencies of modern times it would seem that the inclination is to the formation of great state systems the days of small independent states seem to be over if this be so it may safely be asserted that great state systems cannot be held together by uniform principles of legislation the choice would clearly seem to be between small independent states and the principle of federation adopted in the formation of the dominion of canada the dominion scheme only provided at first for the confederation of the two canadian provinces with nova scotia and new brunswick provision was made however for the admission of any other province of british north america which should desire to follow suit the newly constructed province of manitoba made up out of what had been the hudson bay territories was the first to come in it was admitted into the union in eighteen seventy british columbia and vancouver's island followed in eighteen seventy one and prince edward's island claimed admission in eighteen seventy three the dominion now embraces the whole of the regions constituting british north america with the exception of newfoundland which still prefers its lonely system of quasi-independence it may be assumed however that this curious isolation will not last long and the act constituting the dominion opens the door for the entrance of this latest lingerer outside whenever she may think fit to claim admission the idea of a federation of the provinces of british north america was not new in eighteen sixty seven or even in the days of lord durham when the delegates of the revolted american colonies were discussing among themselves their terms of federation they agreed in their articles of union that canada acceding to the confederation and joining in the measures of the united states shall be admitted into and entitled to the advantages of the union no answer to this appeal was made by either of the canadas but the idea of union among the british provinces among themselves evidently took root then as early as eighteen ten a colonist put forward a somewhat elaborate scheme for the union of the provinces in eighteen fourteen chief justice sewell of quebec submitted a plan of union to the duke of kent in eighteen twenty seven resolutions were introduced into the legislative assembly of upper canada having relation principally to a combination of the two canadas but also suggesting something more politic wise and generally advantageous namely 
and union of the whole four provinces of north america under a viceroyalty with a facsimile of that great and glorious fabric the best monument of human wisdom the british constitution nothing further however was done to advance the principle of federation until after the rebellion in canada and the brief dictatorship of lord durham then as we have already said the foundation of the system was laid in eighteen forty nine an association called the north american league was formed which held a meeting in toronto to promote confederation in eighteen fifty four the legislative assembly of nova scotia discussed and adopted resolutions recommending the closer connection of the british provinces and in eighteen fifty seven the same province urged the question upon the consideration of mr la Boucher, afterwards lord taunton and then colonial secretary mr la Boucher seems to have thought that the imperial government had better not meddle or make in the matter but leave it altogether for the spontaneous action of the colonists in the following year the coalition ministry of canada during the governor-generalship of sir francis head made a move by entering into communications with the imperial government and with the other american provinces the other provinces hung back however and nothing came of this effort then nova scotia tried to get up a scheme of union between herself new brunswick and prince edward's island canada offered to enter into the scheme and in eighteen sixty four mr cardwell then colonial secretary gave it his approval new conferences were held in quebec but the plan was not successful new brunswick seems to have held back this time it was clear however that the provinces were steadily moving toward an agreement and that a basis of federation would be found before long the maritime provinces always felt some difficulty in seeing their way to union with the canadas their outlying position and their distance from the proposed seat of central government made one obvious reason for hesitation even at the time when the bill for the confederation was introduced into the house of lords nova scotia was still holding back that difficulty however was got over and the act was passed in march eighteen sixty seven lord monk was made the first governor-general of the new dominion and its first parliament met at ottawa in november of the same year in eighteen sixty nine we are now somewhat anticipating the dominion was enlarged by the acquisition of the famous hudson's bay territory when the charter of the hudson's bay company expired in eighteen sixty nine lord granville then colonial secretary proposed that the chief part of the company's territories should be transferred to the dominion for three hundred thousand pounds and the proposition was agreed to on both sides the hudson's bay charter dated from the reign of charles the second the region to which it referred carries some of its history imprinted in its names prince rupert was at the head of the association incorporated by the charter into the hudson's bay company the name of rupert's land perpetuates his memory as that of prince edward's island will remind posterity of prince edward duke of kent father of queen victoria the hudson's bay company obtained from king charles by virtue of the charter in sixteen seventy the sole and absolute government of the vast watershed of hudson's bay the rupert's land of the charter on condition of paying yearly to the king and his successors two elks and two black beavers whensoever and as often as we our heirs and successors 
shall happen to enter into the said countries territories and regions the hudson's bay company was opposed by the northwest fur company in seventeen eighty three which fought them for a long time with indians and law with the tomahawk of the red man and the legal judgment of a romilly or a keating in eighteen twelve lord selkirk founded the red river company this interloper on the battlefield was harassed by the northwest company and it was not until eighteen twenty one when the hudson's bay and northwest companies impoverished by their long warfare amalgamated their interests that the red river settlers were able to reap their harvests in peace disturbed only by occasional plagues of locusts and blackbirds in eighteen thirty five on lord selkirk's death the hudson bay company bought the settlement from his executors it had been under their sway before that having been committed to their care by lord selkirk during his lifetime the privilege of exclusive trading east of the rocky mountains was conferred by royal license for twenty-one years in may eighteen thirty eight and some ten years later the company received a grant of vancouver's island for the term of ten years from eighteen forty nine to eighteen fifty nine the hudson's bay company was always careful to foster the idea that their territory was chiefly wilderness and discountenanced the reports of its fertility and fitness for colonization which were from time to time brought to the ears of the english government in eighteen fifty seven at the instance of mr la Boucher, a select committee of the house of commons was appointed to inquire into the state of the british possessions under the company's administration various government expeditions and the publication of many blue books enlightened the public mind as to the real nature of those tracts of lands which the council from the fenchurch street house declared to be so desolate a curious illustration of the policy adopted by the hudson's bay company is to be found in the contrast between the glowing descriptions of the lands under their sway given by sir george simpson who was for forty years governor of the hudson's bay territories in his overland journey round the world and his evidence given before the select committee of the house of commons the company exerted itself strenuously to defend its interests the influence of mr edward ellis who was at once a director of the company and a member of the committee and a witness did much to guide the committee's decision an amendment of mr gladstone to their unsatisfactory report urging that all lands capable of colonization be withdrawn from the company and only land incapable of being so treated left to them was negatived by the casting vote of the chairman during the sittings of the committee there was cited in evidence a petition from five hundred and seventy-five red river settlers to the legislative assembly of canada demanding british protection this appeal was a proceeding curiously at variance with the later action of the settlement when in eighteen sixty nine the chief part of the territories were transferred to canada on the proposition of earl granville the red river country rose in rebellion and refused to receive the new governor louis riel the insurgent chief seized on fort garry and the company's treasury and proclaimed the independence of the settlement sir garnet then colonel wolseley was sent in command of an expedition which reached fort garry on august twenty third when the insurgents submitted without resistance and the district received the name of manitoba End of section nineteen